1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10. We're finishing this last part of this sentence. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. If you were with us a couple weeks ago, we left off at the end of this verse with this question. Is this wrath to come that Paul's referencing here in this verse? Is it referencing our being saved from God's wrath for eternity and our salvation? Or is he speaking about the specific earthly wrath of God to come during the tribulation period? Or is he talking about both? Now, the honest answer is yes, both. But I'm going to show you from the context and from the whole of Scripture, as much as I believe he's talking about both, I believe he's talking specifically more about the tribulation period that is going to come on the whole world. And that's what we're going to talk about in a little bit. Now, it's obvious from Paul's writing to them that the coming wrath in this way that he had already discussed with them, uh, they, sorry, he had already discussed it with them. You know, you, the way he writes it, it's almost like they should know what he's talking about, about the wrath to come. It's like he's referring to something he's already taught them. Remember, he was there in Thessalonica for a while, and he taught them a lot of things. And as you're going to see, some of the things he taught them had caused them to cause, have questions because there were come people, some people coming and saying, well, Paul taught us that there was going to be this time of trial on the world, and it's going to be a tribulation period, and it's going to be horrible, and all these bad things are going to happen. And they were going through suffering, and some people were saying, well, we're already in the day of the Lord. And that's what Paul had to deal with in dealing with some of those questions. One of the questions that they had as well, that Paul had to deal with in this letter as well, is the fact that Paul had taught them that the church was going to be removed prior to the day of the Lord in this time of trial, and that Jesus was going to come back and rapture the church. Well, some Christians were dying, because even though they had been taught to be ready at any moment for His return, some Christians were dying, and they were thinking, well, are these people going to miss that time when Jesus comes to gather the church? Since they've already died, and he had to write 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, where he talks about how Jesus is going to bring with him those who have fallen asleep in him. And their bodies are going to come up out of the ground first, and we who are alive will go caught up to be with the Lord. And so a lot of his, Paul's writing to them in 1 and 2 Thessalonians is, Thessalonians is tied to the fact that he taught them a lot about the end times and there was still some confusion about it, and also because of false teachers, which we'll get into a little bit of that tonight as well. We see also in Paul's second letter to them that he had taught them that the coming day of the Lord begins the tribulation period. And that's what I want to talk to you about, the term the day of the Lord. If you do a study of the term the day of the Lord in the Bible, you'll realize it, it begins at the tribulation period, the seven-year tribulation period, sometime after the rapture of the church. But it then culminates into what we call the millennial kingdom or the thousand-year reign of Christ. Now, there are lots of prophecies about the day of the Lord and how wonderful it's going to be and the lion's going to lay with the lamb and a kid can play in a cobra hole and people will live a long time. And the Jews were looking forward to the day of the Lord, but they missed the passages that talked about the first part of the day of the Lord, which was going to be a time of judgment. So go to um, Amos chapter 5. Amos chapter 5, verses 18 through 20. In Amos chapter 5, starting in verse 18... God speaking through the prophet Amos said to the nation of Israel, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. As if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him. 
or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? He's pretty much saying to him, you guys are looking forward to the day of the Lord. I don't think you fully understand the whole of the day of the Lord. The first part of the day, excuse me, the day of the Lord is going to be judgment. And you're not going to escape it. It's like a guy who tries to, you know, goes and he tries to get away from a lion and he goes, whoo, I get away from the lion and then a bear gets him. Or he gets in his house and goes, oh, I made it. And then a snake bites him. You're not going to escape the judgment of God that is the beginning of the day of the Lord. Go to Isaiah. Go to Isaiah chapter 13. Listen to verses 6 through 13. And as I read this to you and as you read along with me, look closely and think in your mind as to how much this parallels Matthew 24 where Jesus described the tribulation period. Isaiah 13, starting in verse 6. Isaiah 13, starting in verse 6, and we're going to go all the way to verse 13. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. As destruction from the Almighty, it will come. Therefore, all hands will be feeble, and every human heart will melt. They will be dismayed. Pangs and agony will seize them. They will be in anguish like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at one another. Their faces will be aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. I will make people more rare than fine gold and, the mankind, and mankind than the gold of Ophir. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken out of its place at the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of his fierce anger. Folks, if you parallel that with Matthew 24 and Revelation 6, you're going to see that's the tribulation period. It's a time when God's going to have the sun and the moon go dark and the stars fall from the sky. There's going to be an earthquake that levels everything on the globe. I mean, Jesus actually himself talked about the fact that there's going to be false Christs and wars and rumors of wars. And by the way, that's the opening of the seals. That's the first seal and the Antichrist and the red horse. And then talks about famines and earthquakes. That's the third seal. He's describing the tribulation period. But then he says this. He says in Matthew chapter 3, verse 8, he said, but the end is not yet. That's just the beginning of the birth pains. And here we see it's described the day of the Lord is a time of a woman in labor. We're not going to go there, but in Jeremiah 30, verses 4 through 7, again, he says, ask and see, can a man bear a child? Why then do I see every man doubled over with his hands on his stomach like a woman in labor? It's a time of distress for Jacob, yet he will be saved out of it. The Bible's very clear that the day of the Lord is going to be eventually a wonderful time in the millennial kingdom, but it's going to begin with judgment and wrath. And there is a wrath to come on this world where every human heart will melt because of how severe it will be. Go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, look at verses 1 through 7. Like I said, we're, we're going to be studying these two books kind of together. We're going to go in, in verse by verse through chapter 1 into, you know, into 1 Thessalonians, into 2 Thessalonians, but they're, they're kind of connected. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul says, now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, talking about the rapture, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has already come. 
Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming to himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what's restraining him now, so that they may be revealed in his time, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is taken out of the way out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. Now, again, if you remember from Matthew 24, Jesus talked about how that's just the beginning of the birth pains. And then in verse 15, he talks about how when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel, the prophet standing in the holy place, the Antichrist stepping into the temple, declaring himself to be God. Paul said, hey, don't let anybody fool you into saying we're in, in the day of the Lord. There's a whole lot still got to happen. But this is what the day of the Lord's going to look like. There's going to be the time of distress, the Antichrist, all those types of things. And so, folks, keep this in mind. There is a time of wrath that is coming on the whole world. And I believe, and we're going to look at this some more, I believe that when Paul was writing to the church in Thessalonica, and he said, Jesus, who spares us and delivers us from the wrath to come, He's not just talking about the fact that we'll be spared God's wrath for eternity and we don't have to go to hell. But he was also talking about this specific time period of wrath that is coming. Believers in Thessalonica were suffering persecution and someone had told them that the day of the Lord had already begun. And this bothered them because Paul had taught them that they wouldn't be here for the day of the Lord. Plus, because Paul taught of Jesus coming to gather his church before the coming wrath. Some people were concerned, like I said, that church aid believers had missed, who had died would miss this. And that's why Paul wrote, as we already talked about, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18 about the rapture, which we'll get into much more detail when we get to chapter 4. Now, I hope you do understand, though, at the same time, of course, all believers of all ages will be spared God's wrath for eternity in hell. The Bible makes this very clear. We are spared that wrath, and he, Jesus has delivered us from that. But let me give you a couple of verses that will kind of help you remember that. Go to Romans 5. Romans chapter 5, look at verses 1 through 11. Romans 5, verses 1 through 11. Paul says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, will we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, whom He has given to us. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from what? From the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, well, shall we be saved by his life? And more than that, we also rejoice through God, our Lord Jesus Christ, in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Paul said, because of Jesus, you're at peace with God. The wrath of God, because of your sin, has been totally removed. All of God's wrath towards sin was put on Jesus. Now, for those who do not accept what Jesus took on your behalf, 
When you reject God's only payment for your sin and you say, I don't want what Jesus did to cover me, the wrath of God is still on you and it's still coming. But for those of us who are in Christ, thank God, we don't have to worry about the wrath of God. He's not going to punish us ever again. It's already been taken care of. Now, will he discipline us and mold us and shape us? Yes. Is it painful sometimes? Definitely. But is it punishment? No. The wrath of God has been removed. He can't be mad at you anymore. He loves you. Oh, he's loved you all along. But now you can experience the fullness of his love. I want you to hear something, folks. God loves the people in hell just as much as he loves the people in heaven. But they just can't experience the fullness of his love because they have rejected the only way that they can be able to be experiencing the fullness of his love. But go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. Again, you see in your headings, Paul's dealing with the day of the Lord. Well, let's go back to verse 1. We'll give you a little extra that Tuesday night didn't get. Go to chapter 5, verse 1. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come on who? Them. Did you catch that? As what? Labor pains... Come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you're not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you're all children of the light and children of the day. So we're not of the night or the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love for a helmet and the hope of salvation. Sorry, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, he makes very, very clear that those who are going to be judged, it's going to come upon them as a shock. Jesus himself said it's going to be as it was in the days of Noah. And then he says a very interesting thing. They'll be marrying and giving in marriage. Well, let me ask you a question. Is marrying and giving in marriage a bad thing? No. God designed marriage. But what Jesus was saying was, they're going to be so oblivious to what's really coming. Just like the time of the flood, even though Noah preached for 120 years, they ignored it. and They just kept on living. They were cavalier, if you will, about it. But then when the flood came and God shut the door of the ark, they were all caught by surprise and they were judged. In the same way, this, don't be surprised that this world is actually thinking that they're going to make it better and better. I mean, they've convinced themselves if we can just get, you know, a one world government, if we can just get all everybody to follow the same laws and everybody just kind of be robotic, if you will, and do what we all say, we can change the laws and we can change the climate and we can make things better and we can get rid of war and we can take care of all these things. And they're convincing themselves that they're heading toward a utopia. Those of us who know the truth should be like Noah saying, um, a judgment's coming. I know you may think it's all well and good, but it's coming. Now, don't be surprised that they are oblivious. And when the day of the Lord comes, it's going to come like a thief in the night. And they're going to be caught by surprise. But it's not going to catch us by surprise. Why? Because we're looking for the return of Jesus to come and get us prior to that. It won't catch us by surprise because we're watching and ready and looking. And he spares us from the wrath to come. Go to Revelation chapter 6. 
Look at verses 12 through 17. We've already kind of referenced the first seals that were being opened in the beginning of the day of the Lord or the tribulation period. And look at Revelation 6, verses 12 through 17. When he, Jesus, opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake, kind of like we read in, in Isaiah 13. And the sun became black as sackcloth and the full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that's being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. By the way, if you've never been to Hawaii, go quick. Because it's not going to be there, okay? You know what I'm saying? Every island and mountain will be flattened. I'll share with you something that God opened my eyes to just recently. I was kind of reading through. I was teaching the book of Revelation last week at a church in five messages up in Georgia, and I read that at the end of the tribulation, sorry, at the end of the millennial kingdom, remember Satan's going to be released from the pit to tempt a bunch of people. And it says, and they all came across the broad plain of the earth. Isn't that interesting? Whenever you read now about people coming to Jerusalem, they're coming down from the mountains or up the mountain. There's this kind of a topography. But the Bible says at the end of the tribulation period, there's going to be an earthquake that shakes the whole foundations of the earth and every island is going to disappear. Every mountain's going to go flat. God's going to rework the whole earth. Jerusalem's going to be split into three parts. The center part's going to be raised up. The northern part's going to go flat. Southern part's going to go flat. And at the end of the tribulation period, when all those people who were born during that time are tempted by Satan to come fight Jesus, they come across the broad plain of the earth. It's going to be pretty flat. I'd never really noticed that before. It's kind of an interesting thing. Oh, but keep reading. Look at verse 15. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? There's some people who try to say, well, the first part of the tribulation period, those, those first three and a half years, that's the wrath of Satan or the wrath of man. The second part's the wrath of God. No, Jesus is opening all the seals. This is the wrath of God. The prophecies in the Old Testament said it was the day of God's wrath. We're going to be spared that. You know how I know this? Go to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. Look at verses 10 through 13. Jesus says, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I'll make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven in my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, some would say, Jim, I can see how it says that they would be spared from the hour of trial that's going to come on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I understand that. But that was written to the church in Philadelphia. That wasn't written to us. Well, be careful. I had you read to verse 13 on purpose. Because as he makes this promise, he then continues and he says, he was an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church in Philadelphia. No, to the churches. This is a promise for all of us. I don't have time to get into it, but if you go back and look at each of the letters to the churches in Revelation, uh, you will see that Jesus makes promises 
And he says, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And then he makes a promise after that. But about halfway through, he then makes his promise and says, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches after. He flips it. Before he'll say, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And then he'll make a promise. But once you get to the fourth church on, you'll notice that he makes the promise and says, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In other words, the promises prior are all for us. And so, folks, when Paul wrote to them and said, Jesus, who delivers us from the coming wrath, or the wrath to come, is it talking about the eternal wrath of God? Definitely. But I believe without question, context shows us from the two letters and from the whole of Scripture, he's also going to deliver us from the time of trial that's coming on the whole world, the day of the Lord, the tribulation period. And we are going to be gone prior to that. Now, thank the Lord for that. That's why we're to encourage each other with these words. Oh, but does that mean it'll be easy between now and then? No, there will be tribulation. Not the tribulation period, but there's going to be tribulation on the earth, and it's going to get worse and worse. But until then, we keep our eyes looking to the heavens. Go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. I know since we started this study, you wondered if we would ever get to chapter 2, but we are going to. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. For you yourselves know, brothers, Paul's saying this, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though he had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. Now, Paul, in this section, continues his defense of their ministry that they had while they were there. If you remember, we had looked at that briefly in chapter 1, um, how he talked in verse, go to verse um, five, uh, 5. He said, because our gospel came to you, chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians, verse 5, our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. And you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us. And so... What I want to remind you is, is that when Paul would go into towns and begin to preach, there was always opposition. But the opposition didn't just stay there in that town. He, when he would leave that town, because of opposition sometimes, because God said it's time to go to the next place, the people that had a problem with him in the last town would follow him to the next town and talk bad about him and chase him out of there. Remember, he was beaten in Philippi and the magistrates asked him to leave and he went and said goodbye to the church and they went to Thessalonica. And they get to Thessalonica, they stay there for a while, they preach, and then there was an uproar in Thessalonica and they had to leave. They went to Berea and so on. But then the Thessalonians, who had problems with Paul in Thessalonica, went down to Berea and started causing problems there and he had to go to Athens. And remember, he ends up in, in Corinth and we did all that introductory stutter, study. But here's the deal. First off, as we've already looked at, that's kind of the same thing Paul was doing. Didn't he go chasing the Christians from town to town to have them arrested and all that? But at the same time, they weren't just chasing them out. 
They were bad-mouthing Paul everywhere he went. They were saying, well, the only reason he's preaching is he, he's in it for the money. He's trying to control you. He's trying to deceive you. And they were coming up with all these false accusations. And Paul here is saying to them, hey, um, you don't believe those lies. Think back. We didn't do any of that stuff. All the things we were accused of, we didn't do. Now, they were accused of being in the ministry for power, deceit, and greed. By the way, did you know that Peter actually warned the preachers or the elders in the uh, church that he wrote to there? Go to, in 1 Peter 5, go to 1 Peter 5. He warned the, the elders of, of that church to be careful of not falling prey to those same things. Look at 1 Peter 5, verses 1 through 4. Peter says to them, he says, I ex So I exhort the elders, and by the way, the term elder is the same thing as overseer, bishop, pastor. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that's among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive the unfading crown of glory. He said, hey, be careful. There's going to be a strong temptation when you're given this role of leadership to do it for power, do it for money, and do it to deceive people. Now, we're going to talk about this more at the end of our study. But I think we would all agree, especially if we watch television, there's a lot of guys out there who are preaching the gospel to make a buck. Or maybe two bucks. Or maybe more than two bucks. There are those who love the authority that they've been given. The Bible talks about the fact that those of us who are leaders in the church have authority. Hebrews 13 verse 17 says, obey your leaders. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 12 and following says, Respect those who are over you in the Lord and hold them in high regard because of their work. And the Bible says that there's this balance where those who are under the leadership of the, lead, the preachers and the teachers should submit to their authority. Yet at the same time, the Bible says to those of us in authority, never use that authority to domineer. You notice how many times Paul said we could have made demands as apostles of Christ, but we didn't do that. Paul himself, when he wrote to Philemon about Onesimus, the slave that had run from, him, from Philemon and gotten saved, and he's asking Philemon to take him back, he said, I could order you. I'm an apostle, capital A. What I write down is going to be scripture. He had that authority. But he said, I don't want to do that because I want you to do it willingly, not under compulsion. So there's this balance where the people in the church are to submit to their leaders, but the leaders aren't to take advantage of that. Husbands, you're to be loving your wives, even though you're the head of the home, but the wives are to submit to their husbands. But the wives, the word submit means a voluntary submission. The moment the husband says, I'm the head of the home, he's already broken what the scripture's talking about. Yes, you've been given that authority, but you're to lead like Jesus who took the role of the servant. You actually become a guy that she wants to follow. You see, there's this balance. You know, the Bible talks about when it comes to money, that pastors and preachers should never be in it for the money. Yet at the same time, the Bible makes very clear that the church people should really make sure their pastors are well paid. 
You know that first, uh, first Timothy 5.17? It says, it talks about the, those who serve as elders uh, should be, are worthy of double honor, especially those whose role is preaching and teaching. And by the way, that's not talking about calling him reverend or pastor and giving him a parking space. The double honor, if you look at the context, is money. In the full context, you keep reading, it talks about how you don't muzzle the ox when it's treading out the grain. Hey, you need to be paying your pastors so much so that they don't ever worry about money and they won't even be in it for the money. Oh, by the way, you pastors, if they take good care of you, don't look in at the money. There's this balance. Folks, that's why Paul, even though he had the right, he talks about in the book of 1 Corinthians, he had the right to get his living from the gospel so that he would never be accused of being in it for the money. He actually became a bivocational pastor and he made tents and paid for his own stuff. That's how Just a Preacher is set up. One of the places I went this past week, we got no money for going. And my wife and I went, we paid for a hotel, we paid for meals, we paid for all these things, went and preached the gospel to him. Didn't even get a check. But that's okay, you know why? Because we have made it that way and told churches, look, we don't care if you have money, we want to come and share with you the word of God. You think you want us to come? We'll come. And God is blessed that people support our ministry. And when you generously give to the ministry, you make it so that we can do it free of charge. And we give our books away. We give away everything. Why? Because we don't want anybody to say Jim Johnson's preaching for the money. I can prove to you. And you could even say I can prove to you he's not because he gives everything away. That's one of the cool things was when I preached at that church in Georgia, the pastor got up one night and said, hey, folks, I want us to take a love offering. But before we do, let me just say something to you. Jim is now mad that I'm asking you to give some money. Because <laughs> he never talks about money, and he actually has not demanded anything. And as you know, we gave a 200 books away at, the, at that church that way. Gave 200 books away. But I sat there at the same time going, praise God, he got up there and said, Jim's not doing this for the money. There are those in leadership who actually, well, they do it for the wrong reasons. Paul said, think about our visit to you. We were gentle and we paid for our own needs. Go to 1 Thessalonians 2 again and look at verses 3 through 8 one more time now with this context behind it. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive but just as we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with the pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. Does anybody here remember when there used to be something called a pastor's discount? If you don't know what I'm talking about, let me fill you in. Years ago, there used to be doctors who would give clergy discounts for pastors and their families because pastors, unfortunately, weren't paid very well. And so there were clergy discounts. Back when I was a pastor in Chicago, there was a golf course that actually had a clergy discount. 
where if you were a pastor and could prove you were a pastor, they would give you a discount at the golf course. It was actually at Cog Hill where they used to play the Western Open up there. We didn't play the professional course, but they had four courses there. And the one right next to the pro course, which was still very nice, you could get a big discount if you could show that you were a pastor. And they gave discounts to pastors. But those have gone away. The reason that you all sat there looking at me blank is you've never heard of this. Why? Because there became a problem. Once people found out that there were such a thing as pastor discounts and all you had to do was show your little clergy card, everybody went online and got ordained. They got a little card sent to them in the mail and they'd go to their doctor and say, I'm a reverend now. Or they'd go to the golf course and say, I'm a reverend now. And so many people did it, the clergy discount went away because people became pastors for the discount. When I was in Haiti back in 2001, I was doing a pastor's conference and I was teaching these pastors for a week. And one of the things that absolutely shocked me was the fact that there were so many pastors there that weren't saved. I mean, it was obvious. They didn't know the word of God. Some of them didn't even have a Bible. And it was obvious they weren't even Christians. And so I grabbed one of the leaders who had kind of set this all up and I said, help me out here. How come I'm doing a pastor's conference and a lot of these guys don't even know the Lord? He said, well, we got a problem here in Haiti. I said, what's that? He goes, well, you know, the Bible says that the church is supposed to take care of the pastor. Well, because the unemployment rate is so high here in Haiti, a lot of people are just calling themselves pastors so that the church will have to take care of them because they can't find a job. And so they became pastors for the money. Go to Ezekiel 34. Ezekiel 34, look at verses 1 through 4. Ezekiel 34, verse 1, The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves. Should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. Go to the book of Jude. Go to Jude, verses 3 and 4, and then jump to verses 10, and 6, 10 through 16. Jude 3 and 4. Jude 3 and 4, and then 10, and, 10 through 16. He said, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. That, keep that in mind. They... they, they uh, Pervert the grace of God into sensuality, and, and we'll deal with that in a little bit. Now jump down to verse 10. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them! For they walked in the way of Cain, and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error, and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feast, as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves. 
Waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, and wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. Again, we probably have had a few pastors over the years come to our mind as we have read some of these things. There are those who have been kind of abusive. There are those who have been kind of pompous, kind of loud, arrogant, Love the attention, love the fact that their name's on the church bus. Beware of those kind of guys. They're, they're out there. And there are also those, like we saw here in the beginning of Jude, verses 3 and 4, who will not only come for money or power, but they'll also come in to teach error, intentionally to teach error. Or sometimes, just as he wrote earlier down here, these people, verse 10, blaspheme all that they don't understand. They are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. It makes sense to them, so they teach it. Go to 2 Timothy chapter 4. This is a verse that I think a lot of you know pretty well, or a passage that you all know pretty well. But I want you to listen to it afresh and anew with the internet in mind. This is going to read so different from to, than you've ever read this passage. Keep the internet in mind. 2 Timothy 4, verses 1 through 4. Paul tells Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Now, think about this. Back in the day, if someone was going to be a preacher, they had to be going through an ordination process, a licensing by a church, and then an ordination council, and they had to be examined. And then the church would either lay hands on them or not lay hands on them. Do you remember all that? Nowadays, there's none of that. And because of the Internet, there's a lot of guys out there that have now become teachers, and people are accumulating for themselves lots of preachers and teachers because these people are saying things that, you know, that feels right. That feels good. And like unreasoning animals, they just do what's instinctive instead of knowing the word of God. But true under shepherds are going to point you to Jesus and not them or their formulas or their system. That's one of the reasons. And please don't hear me. I'm not bashing anyone by saying this. But that's why when I felt called by God to leave the pastorate, to go into this ministry that he called us to, to travel and to help the church get ready for the return of Jesus, I intentionally did not want to name it Jim Johnson Ministries. I didn't want it to be about me. 
I didn't want it to be associated with my name. And that's why we chose just a preacher. I'm just a preacher. And that's what God's called me to do. And it's not about me. My role is to point you to Jesus. Go to Ephesians 4. There's a passage that we've looked at a few times, but I want you to go a little bit slower because there's a middle section we tend to skip over. Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. Paul says, And he, this is God, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith, and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into who? Into Jesus, who is the head, into Christ. And from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it's equipped, when each part's working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastor teachers to equip you to do the work of the ministry. Not to do the work of the ministry for you and have you sit back and say, boy, they really did a good job. But actually equip you to do the work of the ministry. And then at the same time, as we spend our time not waiting on tables and going to visit everybody, but actually feeding you the word of God, you will no longer be children that are tossed to and fro by every into teaching. Have you ever noticed that as churches change pastors, the doctrine of the church keeps changing? Because we just follow whoever the guy is in the pulpit and he must know better than me and whatever he says, I'll believe. And the next guy comes in and tells you something else. Our job is to teach you on the feet, feet on the word of God so you'll recognize truth from error. And you won't be tossed to and fro. Paul in 1 Corinthians 3 writes to the church there in Corinth and he says, guys, I couldn't even address you as mature. I had to treat you like children. I wanted to feed you meat, but you weren't ready for me. You're still only on the milk. You know why? Because you guys are all too busy still running around saying, well, I follow Paul or I follow Apollos or I follow Peter or I follow Christ. And you're all fighting with each other over who's the best guy to follow. You should never follow anybody. You should follow Jesus. And the pastor should be pointing you to him, teaching you how to know him better, how to know the word and then follow him. Paul did say, imitate me as I follow Christ. He wasn't saying, do what I do. He was saying, do what I do. And by the way, what I'm doing is I'm following Jesus. You follow Jesus. That's what he was talking about. Go to Acts chapter 20. Look at verses 28 through 32. Paul's talking to the Ephesian elders. Don't miss what he says to the pastors first. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves first and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Isn't that interesting? You, you check your own self first before you go and check anybody else. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I didn't cease night or day to admonish every one of you with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace 
which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Did you hear what he said? He said, hey, I know there's going to come in afterwards from within the church who are going to try to become leaders and teachers and they want you to follow them. And they're going to try to take over the church. But they really want you to follow them. And here's what you walk, you're looking for. Is this person pointing me to Jesus or is they telling me to follow them? Now, if you don't mind, get out a piece of paper and a pen. I'm going to give you a list of all the false preachers that are out there. Thank you for laughing. I gave the same quiz last night to the Tuesday night group and they laughed too, which is good. Because I hope you didn't take me seriously. Because if you took me seriously and got your paper out and your pen, okay, who does Jim say is the false prophet? I would have been going against everything that I just said to you tonight. I would have said, follow me. I know the right ones and the wrong ones. You just listen to me. No, my job is to tell you, you walk with Jesus and he'll teach you how to recognize truth from error. Now, I want to take it another step further, though. Do not make it your ministry to root out false teachers. What did Paul say? There's going to come some guys and I want you to get your constitution and bylaws set up so that you can deal with them. No, what does he say? I commit you to God and the word of his grace. If you look back over the scriptures, the scripture says very clearly, you will recognize false teachers by their fruit. Now I'm going to go a step further. There are going to be teachers out there that you don't agree with 100%. I might even be one. There are guys out there that I will tell you right now that I don't agree with them when it comes to their end times views. I may not fully agree with them and how they think salvation occurs, but if they believe that salvation is alone through faith in Jesus Christ, they're my brother. And just because I may not agree with this person's end times view doesn't mean that I still don't listen to them when they come on the radio. I recognize when I think he's sharing things that are lining up with the word and things that aren't. But I don't immediately say, well, that guy's a heretic, so he's wrong. He doesn't agree with me on this, so I'm not going to listen to him anymore. Because God actually can speak through these guys who are my brothers. Oh, there are those out there that are shysters in it for the money, and I don't, I don't waste my time with them. But, well, God did something really kind of interesting about, a, I don't know, three, four weeks, month ago. I lose track of time. Might even be three months, I don't even remember. But I was on the golf course and a buddy of mine brought a friend that he had just met and he was a golfer and he said, I want you to meet this guy, Jim. And so we playing golf and I asked him to tell me his testimony because it was obvious he was a Christian. This guy's older gentleman and he had an interesting life story and he didn't get saved till later in life. And to be honest with you, he, he actually was very against Christ and he would listen to a satellite radio to this new age stuff. And then one day he said, I came to realize, you know what? All these new age teachers are just saying the same old things they've always said for 70 years. It's just like nothing's new. And so he goes, I just decided I'm not listening to these nuts anymore. And I just started spinning the dial on my satellite radio and I ran across and he named the name of a preacher on the satellite radio that I would have said, change the dial. But he goes, you know what? I was listening to this guy and I was interested and it really got a hold of me. And so I packed up and moved. I'm not going to name the city, but it, he moved to that part of the U.S. to go to that guy's church. Actually got plugged in, lived there for seven months, went, in, went and met the guy and said, look, I, I'll sweep floors. I'll do whatever you want. I just I want to be around you and I'm going to be around this church. And he came to faith in Christ. After a while, he realized, OK, 
I'm not getting anything more here. And he moved on. And right now he's actually in Bible college and seminary. And he actually wants to teach the biblical worldview to teenagers and 20-year-olds. That's what his passion is. He's very intellectual. And his desire is to teach young people nowadays a biblical worldview. And I'm sitting there saying, dude, go. But he gets saved through a guy that I think's a nut and a heretic. Do you see the danger of setting yourself up as judge? You know, nowadays what we do as Christians, if someone disagrees with us in any way, we consider them an enemy. Isn't that what the world's doing to each other? You're on the other side of the aisle, you're now my enemy. You don't agree with me when it comes to homosexuality, you're my enemy. You don't agree with me when it comes to transhumanism or all this stuff, you're my enemy. And we're doing that to each other as Christians. Guys, I want to just say to you in love, let the Spirit of God and the Word of God show you truth from error. But don't be quick to just chuck whoever it is. Actually, in 1 Thessalonians 5, it says this. It says, don't, well, let me read it to you. It talks about don't hold the prophecies with contempt. Go to 1 Thessalonians 5. Look at what he says here. He says, verse 20, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good and abstain from every form of evil. Isn't that interesting? Don't despise prophecies. Don't just say, I'm not going to listen to that preacher. But learn to recognize what's truth. Hang on to it. Chuck, what's not? And I'm so, some of you are probably saying, Jim, you don't have to go on this any longer. We've been doing this to deer teaching for years, so don't worry about it. But I hope you check everything I say against the scriptures. I'm still growing in my knowledge of the word of God. And there are actually things I used to say that I'm hoping aren't recorded anymore. Because I don't believe that anymore. I used to be one of those preachers that said, oh, the earthquakes are increasing and, and, and famines and all this. We're in the birth pains. Now I've come to realize we're not in the birth pains yet. The birth pains are still to come. Plus, if we've been in the birth, if we're really in the birth pains, it's been 2,000 years of birth pains. What kind of birth pains are those? But you know what? God still uses me. And he'll still use some of these other people. And you have to learn how to recognize, is this person in it for the money? Are they wanting authority and power? Are they trying to deceive? And you're going to have to, I don't think this is a bad thing, get closer to Jesus. So he'll walk you through that. And you'll no longer be infants tossed to and fro by every wind of teaching and cunning and craftiness of men and their deceitful schemes. But growing up into him, you'll understand your role and how it all comes together. And that's going to be a process. Only God knows people's hearts. Go to 1 Corinthians 4. Look at verses 1 through 6. Actually, let me back up to chapter 3 and lay a little more foundation. Go to 1 Corinthians 3. I referenced this earlier, but I wanted you to hear what Paul says. Verse, chapter 3, verse 1. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you're not yet ready, for you're still of the flesh. For while there's jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? 
For when one says, well, I follow Paul, another says, I follow Apollos, or are you not merely being human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? They're just servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth. Now, jump over to chapter 4, look at verse 1. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it's required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. For I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It's the Lord who judges me. And therefore, just as I don't even really know my own heart, and God's going to have to show me, you don't know anybody else's heart, so don't take that role. Therefore, don't pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Look at verse 6. I have applied all these things to myself and to Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. You see it? There's a tendency nowadays to say, well, I follow John MacArthur. That's the guy I like. Well, I'm a Tony Evans guy. I love both those guys. I love David Jeremiah's teaching. Charles Stanley is in heaven now, but his teaching is still out there. And Adrian Rogers has been with the Lord for about 16, 17 years now. But I still love Adrian Rogers' recordings, and thank God for him. I could go on and on. But let me just say to you, I don't follow those guys. I walk with Jesus. But God uses them every now and then to encourage me. Go to James chapter 5. Look at verses 7 through 9. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. You know how some of the Jesus' disciples came to Jesus and said, we saw some people preaching in your name and we told them to stop because they weren't one of us. And what did Jesus say? Actually, you shouldn't have done that. They're actually with us. Well, they weren't one of us. Yeah, that's true. But they kind of were. They might not have the same sign on the front of their church, but they believe the gospel. They're brothers and sisters. But do you know that they approve these types of sins? Yeah, I'm working on that too. But if they believe the gospel, they're your brothers and sisters in Christ. And we need to chill out a little bit in these days and not fall prey to the temptation to divide the church by who's in and who's out. And Paul was writing to them saying, yes, there are people that came in after I left and accused me of a whole lot of stuff. Let me ask you a question. Examine my life. 
Did you see any of that? They were trying to get you to question my motives, question my heart. But let me ask you, did you see any of that? I love the fact that as I look around, I know a lot of you and Robert and I have played golf and Butch and I have played golf. And there's a guy that comes every Tuesday night to his Bible study with his wife. And every Wednesday morning, he and I are on the golf course after Bible study. That's an encouragement to me. You know why? Because that guy sees me on Tuesday night standing in the pulpit. And he also sees me on the golf course every Wednesday. And he keeps coming back to Bible study. That's a good thing. I never let him win. He beats me, but I never let him win. But let me say this. Let me ask you. What about you now? Let's take the eyes off of the preachers as we close tonight. In the book of Peter, Peter says, live your life in such a way that even though they accuse you of wrong, there'll really be nothing to back it up. Are you living your life in such a way? And you'll be accused of stuff. Your family even will accuse you of your motives being impure or whatever. Are you living in such a way that even though they accuse you of it, they really don't have anything? If they do, let God work on getting that cleaned up so he can still use you. I love you. We'll see you next week. Thanks for coming. Thanks.